This is Spiritual Principles for Emotional Healing with Dr. Denise Johnson, a show dedicated to the integration of spirituality, faith, mental health, and emotional wellness. I believe where your spirit leads, your emotions, power, and destiny will follow. Welcome to the show, everyone. You are listening to Spiritual Principles for Emotional Healing, and I am your host, Christian Emotional Wellness Expert and Licensed Mental Health Professional, Dr. Denise Johnson. And the excellent topic for today's show is Incarceration, Healing Words, and Restoration. And this is part two to a show we began last time. And my guest is Janika Veasley, LMFT. Janika Veasley is a licensed marriage and family therapist who is the founder of Healing Words Family Services, LLC, in Yardley, Pennsylvania. She is committed to helping couples, families, and individuals succeed in living a holistic and healthy life. It is her passion to help those in need of healing and restoration. She has worked with children, individuals, couples, and families who have presented with issues related to trauma, behavioral disorders, and substance abuse. Ms. Janika specializes in trauma, systems theory, psychodynamic theory, and dialectical behavior therapy. She has had the privilege of working in various settings that include in-home services, outpatient substance abuse evaluation and treatment, general outpatient services, foster care treatment, and correctional settings. Currently, Ms. Janika works with reentry services as the Director of Clinical Services with Juvenile and Adult Reentry Connections. Ms. Janika earned her master's degree from Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Well, Ms. Janika, it is my absolute delight and joy and privilege and honor to have you as a guest today, and I just want to thank you so, so much for the openness of your heart to share with me and my audience today. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So then, what are some of the typical issues of incarcerated individuals? You, you kind of spoke on it some, uh, but that brings them to mental health services. So I would see a lot of people, um, some when they first got there just because they were upset about, you know, being there in their charge. And then there would be some who had to deal with different changes with their family. If they okay. lost a loved one, dealing with them and, yes. and kind of helping them through their grief. Um, right. The most you can okay. hope for is that they send you a program after the funeral. So, oh, boy. Exactly. Exactly. It's really rough to have to go through right. a change or conflict in the family like that. Um, yes. And so a lot of times we would see people after they found out that they lost someone. And for, for the administration, they were like, well, we don't want them to kill themselves. And like, that's not generally how that works. I get what you're saying, <laughs> but that's not really how that works. Um, and so for me, <laughs> I was like, that's. Most people don't go to that place. Some do, but most don't. 
But right. I wanted to be there with people because you just got some really bad news and you just want someone to be with you in that. Yes. And, yes. you know, just kind of giving them some empathy yes. and some space. Yes. And I remember having one guy who suddenly lost his father and my client was young. He's maybe 21, 22. And it was mm-hmm. very sudden. And, oh. you know, everyone kept saying, are you okay? And does he need this? And does he need... We're going to send him to mental health. And, I was like, he just needs to cry. Just let him cry. Yes. yes. And but in jail, if you're crying, that's that's a big oh, warning yes. sign for a lot yes, of people. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So when they brought him in, you know, we just let him sit there for a minute. I asked him if he wanted any tea, which generally you don't do. But he just lost his father, and I just let him sit there for a minute. He just needed some space. Yes. And then I was, I asked him if he wanted to talk. Not today. Maybe later today. And so kind of just giving him something that is unheard of in jail in that space. Right? You yes. always have someone right on top of you. And so yes. for him to catch a good, I think he's happened for about, about an hour. And just let him have that moment, you know? And, yes. and I think that is one of the biggest challenges with individuals um, other than legal case. Um, right. You know, you would have people who are arguing with their family or you know, your girlfriend broke up with you or yes. Yes. different family things that you're trying to navigate, help them stay calm as much as possible. But they're upset and they're allowed to be upset. And so I really want to give people that time and that space to be angry, to cry, to feel whatever they're feeling away from the unit and away from, you know, everyone watching and listening and, and, and talking about them and laughing at them and throwing it up in their exactly. face later and all, and all those you know, kinds of things. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then what are the uh, issues in terms of discharge planning or reentry usually? There was um, the jail I worked in had a separate, uh, department that that would deal with a lot of that. Okay. And okay. so finding them different resources, but we would work together. And so if they needed okay. something in terms of any information about their mental health, we would help them kind of com- put this, this packet together, so to speak. And that way when the person leaves, they have what medications are they on? When were they taking okay. them? What were they diagnosed okay. with? And so the other department got to do that part, thankfully, because that was a job in itself, working on discharge planning. Yes. So yes, it is. Thankfully, I didn't have to do too much of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! And so I know that you work mostly with reentry now. So mm-hmm. you know, maybe you could just tell the audience what is reentry for people who may not know, and then what do you do for them, and how does that work? Sure. Um, so when we say reentry, we're referring to people, um, juveniles and adults, coming home from. Uh, group homes, uh, juvenile detention, county okay. jail, any type okay. of prison, um, right. and coming back to the community and trying right. to be part of this community even though they've been away from it for a very long time. Okay. And so when it comes to the needs, they may need to get a birth certificate or a driver's license or okay. um, social security turned on, different things like that. So we okay. do with the case management side, but we also provide therapy. And for okay. those coming home, because it's a higher level of care, we often do it in the home. Um, okay. And then we step you down to outpatient as you kind of adjust to being home. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And I, I think that people may not realize how important having thoughtful reentry planning is because mm-hmm. in my experience, a lot of times, even though jail and being in a facility may be uncomfortable for certain reasons, it still provides a certain level of structure and continuity 
that they become accustomed to. And then when they go back out into the community, they usually don't have that level of structure and, and exactly. that level of help and support, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, if people are left to their own devices or if we, if we release them back into the environment that caused the problem that they had in the first place, you know, mm-hmm. people are very, very likely to repeat whatever the criminal behavior is or the mental health issues that they had or whatever, whatever if they were dealing with anger before and that was their issue. You know, if mm-hmm. we don't do something to intervene when they leave and go back into the community to make it better than it was before, they're, re- yeah. li- they're likely to just, you know, revolving door back and back and back and back and problem after problem after problem. And we want to try to stop that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's why discharge planning is so important. Um, because as you're, you're planning to leave the facility, having a plan in place will, will alleviate some of those stressors. Um, yes. And then you have a team of people on the outside ready to help you rather yes. than you getting out and then kind of looking around like, I don't know where to look for help. Yeah. You know, so I think that that's where that discharge planning really comes in. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So how, how long is your reentry or your reentry services in general? So there's not necessarily a time limit. Um, okay. And so we really, we work a lot with the, the person's PO to see kind okay. of what are the needs, what are the concerns. And so that will also dictate how long, their treatment might be. Some people only okay. want to do it just until they're done with that first stage of parole or probation. Um, okay. And sometimes it's dictated by, by parole or probation that they do some type of therapy. And okay. so that will kind of dictate the length sometimes. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So then my next question is, do you find that special populations might have any particular types of special needs when it comes to reentry? Uh, I was thinking minors or maybe males versus females or parents or any special needs based on uh, special groups? I've seen a little bit of, almost like a little bit of each category. Okay. And so the jail I was in was both male and female, but there were significantly less women. And so you would see that they didn't always have access to the same services because you have to keep the men and women separate. And so that would dictate when they could go out to the law library, when they could go yes. get certain services. Um, okay. And so I feel as though female offenders are a little bit, you know, may come off the wrong way, a little needier. They have okay. different needs. And so okay. you have to be able to address that. You know, female offenders generally have more substance use and abuse history. Okay. Um, okay. More trauma history. Yes. Um, more mental health in general. And yes. different health needs. You know, there okay. are... Uh, female issues that you have to deal with, for example. Yes. But there is not always a lot of, of hygiene products available or yes. different things like that. And so that can easily turn into a situation where they're constantly asking for a hygiene product and it's not being provided. They have to, like, makeshift their own in a way. And so it becomes yes. a different kind of need. I think they need more yes. resources. Yes. Um, I have seen where people who were parents or you know, had their children taken because they got arrested, now have a, a case with the state division for yes. children and families. Yes. And so now they have supervised visits in the jail. Right. And so I think when you make those services available, that then helps them to sustain while they're in jail. Yes. So I yes. think, you know, we have to be mindful whether they're parents, are they, 
So do they have any health issues? For minors, they need more school services. You're going to yes. need to provide a GED program um, yes. and kind of be able to structure it similar to school if possible. That may yes. not always be possible, but we've, I've seen a few minors. Generally, it was 18 and up, so not everyone was doing those kinds of things. But we would have a few who got arrested as a minor and had to come to yes. the facility and adjust. You know, and that you see yes. them a little bit more frequently because they're 16 or 17. Yes. And then everyone else in the unit is 40. And right. it's, it's scary. So you have to see them a little bit more. Um, yes. So I think each population has a different need. And it is yes. then challenging when all of that is in one building. Yes. Because you're trying yes, to meet all of those different needs. Yeah. Yes. When, lim- when resources are limited and the, the system tends to view everybody the same. Mm-hmm. So you were Very exactly much so. right. So then what do you think is the, I'm going to say the percentage of mental health issues in incarcerated populations. Is it a large percent or a small percent? What, what would you say based on your experience? I'm going to guess it's pretty large. I think the percentage of severe mental illness is relatively small. Or it used, okay. let me say it this way, it used to be pretty small. Um, okay. A lot of what's happening is closing down different hospitals. It's yes. the same individuals who need care, need treatment, are home and they may have uh, committed an offense and where they yes. would go to a hospital for treatment, now they're coming to jail. And so right. I think the numbers are rising um, yes. because of that. But then you also have yes. people who are depressed, who are anxious, who have ADHD or have had some trauma. And I think yes. that's more than people want to recognize, especially I trauma. So too. Yes. You know, I think the individuals that you see in, in facilities have had significant trauma probably as a child. Yes. And so they're trying to function with all of that and eventually end up in, in these facilities somehow and yet are still not being treated. So a lot of yes. that, I think the trauma and depression kind of goes under the radar. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I'm going to say when I worked uh, at the youth house, at the, the detention center, I would say every child that I saw that I interviewed had a trauma mm-hmm. history if they were honest mm-hmm. enough to tell you about their real history. Exactly. And, you know, and, and then the question becomes, you know, so, okay, we have all of these kids with trauma, and, you know, what is it about that that ends up with them being in a place like this? You know, exactly. uh, at least for the inner city kids, a lot of times I think it's because they're traumatized. A lot of times they're dealing with their anger about mm-hmm. their life history. And when young people are angry, they're more likely to act out in ways, right, that's going to bring them under Exactly. Uh, the auspices of law enforcement, right? Mm-hmm. And and they're more likely to get arrested. And, and the thing that I used to always think is that, you know, we have this population who basically are here. We ought to be giving everybody mental health services. Yeah. Um, or Or some sort of rehabilitation services or some sort of psychoeducation, you know, yeah. about certain things because – they, they're here, they're doing nothing on the unit, right? Mm-hmm. And this, I mean, this, and because they are stuck, so to speak, in the facility, I think some of them might be more open to going to classes about different things just because they're bored and want something to do. Exactly. And it would exactly. give us more of an opportunity to try to help them as opposed to them just sitting on the unit. It's a negative environment, and they go back out to the community. It's a negative environment. It's just... You know, I, I think we could do more to, to help them. I agree. I agree. While they are there. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, I think this is an excellent place for a break. Please join us after the break when my guest, Janika Veasley, licensed mental health professional and founder of Healing Words Family Services, LLC, in Yardley, Pennsylvania, will talk more about incarceration and restoration. everyone you are listening to spiritual principles for emotional healing and I am your host licensed mental health professional Dr. Denise Johnson and the topic for today's show is incarceration healing words and restoration and my guest is licensed mental health professional Janika Veasley founder of Healing Words Family Services, LLC, in Yardley, Pennsylvania. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about what is meant when people talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. So generally that is referring to how students are criminalized from a point of being while they're in school to now it kind of sends you directly into the arms of law enforcement. Okay. And so that might be with this different disciplinary um, actions and policies. And that the reality is what happens is what could be an administrative issue where you might, yes. see, you know, go to the principal's office. You right. have a lot of schools that either have some type of security guard, they have cops in the schools. Um, and so what is, what can be a pretty minor infraction now becomes a legal issue because they're calling the security guard, they're calling the cops, okay. rather than right. dealing with it as an in-house school issue. Yes. Um, and so I know I've seen, of course, things like this go viral when you see these kind of videos, students that are now wrestling and fighting with these officers right. and the, escalate, the situation escalates. And so yes. it becomes a legal thing. Now it becomes an assault charge. Yes. You know, so... Um, to say the school to prison pipeline is pretty much a process where students are criminalized straight from yes. some type, whatever grade they're in, but straight from a school uh, type of, of environment, straight yes. into jail, prisons, getting arrested. And there's very little room for intervention in between because it happens very, very quickly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing about that that is sad to me is that most often, this, you usually see this happening, I'm going to say, in the inner city. Yes. You know, in poor urban areas. And so a mm-hmm. lot of times, it is the black and the Latino youth 
who usually yeah. are, and, ma- and the males, even though it's happening to females too, but mm-hmm. for the males in particular, this, this is what's going on. Um, and it's just, it's just very distressing and very upsetting because rather than seeing them as children or as young mm-hmm. people who are valuable and who are crying for help, right, again, mm-hmm. we, we see them as criminals and bad guys and, uh, you know, try to be more punitive with them than their situation or, or their age maybe warrants. And, you know, we're pushing them towards criminality and, and being angry yeah. and being involved in the system rather than, you know, to me, children and young people, we should help them. We should have open hearts. We should get to know them one-on-one. We should, it just should be a different level of, of intervention. Mm-hmm than just uh, beating them over the head with the rules or whatever and kicking them out and and, and arresting them. Exactly. And I think what happens a lot of times with young adults is we expect them not to have reactions to things. We expect them to be calm and always, you know, deal with things appropriately. But as adults, most of us don't. No, we we don't. We get upset when young adults and children get emotional and get frustrated and get angry and they're children. They have a hard time managing those emotions, and yes. yet we are criminalizing them for it. Yes, we don't. I agree. Criminalize adults for the same thing. Generally, we don't. Right. You know, you right. can go to work and have a conflict with your boss and storm out, and you know, you might get in trouble, but you're not going to get arrested. If a student starts <laughs> arguing with their teacher, right? Yeah. <laughs> Generally, you don't get arrested for that. If yes. a student's arguing with their teacher, um, and it becomes a heated conflict. Like, okay, yes. well, you know, they tell the administrator to call the police. Right. No. Why? Yes. Because they get in an argument with you? Yes. You know, and so that's kind of what that person in pipeline is. You know, things that are pretty minor become huge. And like you said, the reality is it happens more to students that are black and Latino. This yes. doesn't, you don't really see that in suburban schools. No, not, not usually. Yeah, because the suburban parents would be outraged if the school oh. treated their treated little little Johnny and little Mary that way. Uh, exactly. They would be outraged and wouldn't stand for it. Exactly, hundred percent. So I think that is it's something that really has to be taken into consideration because you're you're starting children on this this line that is directly taking them to jail, when yes. the reality is it's not necessary but we're criminalizing yeah. and weapon i think gabrielle union said it best you know we're weaponizing blackness when she was talking yeah. about her stepsons and and trying to explain that because the reality is you know black students are more likely to be suspended and expelled than white students yes yes and interesting you should say that i was wondering do you have any particular stats on disproportionality that you know offhand from what i've looked up um black students are three times as likely to be expelled um and I think about 30% of school-related arrests are children of color, or either black okay. children or Latino children. And All right. I find that to be pretty alarming. And, and also, when you think about it, schools in the city have metal detectors. They have cops. They have security guards. The schools I went to, and I'm, like I said, I'm from outside of Philadelphia, they didn't right. have that. So right. you're not creating them, creating this atmosphere where they're policed. You know, right. In suburban schools, you just go to school. In schools right. in the city, like I said, they have all these different things. And so it is a process. You can get to class. You have to be, you know, go through the metal detector and be wanted down. And 
Yes. It's a whole process that is quite similar to jail. You yes, know, that's true. <clears throat> when when that's true. individuals on a unit leave the unit and come back, they're wanded down. Yes. It is the same exact process as trying to get into school in Philadelphia right. or in any right. city, really. And so I think that's right. something to be mindful of. Yes. <clears throat> I, I think agree. children who are from, were in the foster care system, those numbers go up for, for yes. those children. Yes, um, it does. And so I think that's something to be mindful of, that they're already in the system that is very unstable. And then right. we criminalize them and send them to another system that is very unstable. Um, right. And so I think it's something to keep in mind because I think it's about 70% of state prison inmates were, at, were in foster care as yes. young adults. Yes, yes. And yes. so I think that's something that we have to pay attention to. How do we treat yes. those young adults? I agree. Um, what is the role of racial trauma in the incarcerated population? I think that is something that is very pervasive. Um, yes. Because when things happen, especially if it is a black or a Latino student and a white teacher, administrator, um, police officer, it feels, it's already going to feel very, very racial. Yes. But, you know, if you're coming from a system that already feels very oppressed, and going into another system where that power and hierarchy is there, it, it's going to be the same type of oppression, right. the same structure. Um, and so I think you go from already feeling kind of victimized and, and judged and discriminated against to now having less power, less availability to, you know, less autonomy. Yes. And it feels very, very racial. Um, yes. I have seen people you know, when, that I've talked to feel as though they're not getting fairly treated, they're not getting treatment, they're not getting their needs met because they are black or because they're Latino. Right. And right. I can't sit there and say that they're wrong. <laughs> I can't right. say they're necessarily right, but, you know, I get how it looks that way. Yes. And so if it's not, you know, I can't speak for anybody in, in this kind of situation, but I've had people say to me, you know, the doctor won't see me or the doctor's judging me because I'm right. black. If I were white, yeah. they would treat me differently. Right. And I'm like, well, you're probably, you might be right. Yeah. Because I think part of it is racism and bigotry is, part, is just American DNA. It's just yes. ingrained in the system. Yes. And so America was founded on racism and, and cultivated with racist policies. So how is it yes. not part of our judicial system and, and yes. correctional system? Um, yes. Yes. I'm not going to say everybody. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And, and the thing about racial trauma also that is so difficult is that a lot of times it, it makes people's anger worse. It compounds the problem yes. that they're already having because it adds to their anger and their upset. Yes. But, but the thing about it also is it's very hard to identify and put your finger on from from mm -hmm. the point of view of the client. And because they are powerless and don't have any way to do anything about it, that also adds to their upset. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it just, it just makes uh, dealing with their other social issues, it just compounds it. It makes it so much more hurtful, painful, difficult. Um, and so I think also part of what we do when we work with the population is part of our advocacy is for trying to make sure that they're treated equally and fair. 
yes. right, from a, raci- from a racial standpoint yes. as well. Because I know that I used to do that. Well, the client can't speak up for himself because he's a black mm-hmm. male and he feels that this person treated him this way. But as exactly. his clinician, okay, I could present to you this is how he feels and this is exactly. why. And, you know, even though the, the other person may not have meant to have treated him that way, we, you know, we need to look at this and see mm-hmm. if, if, it's, if, it's, if we're treating young black men in a certain way across the board and maybe we need to do something different. Uh, exactly. Or, or, or acknowledge it or, or provide a different sort of intervention for it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it just adds to what we need to do with our, our advocacy. Yeah, I agree 100%. Okay. Um, what would you say is the role of spirituality, healing words, and restoration in these populations? I think a lot of people have some type of faith practice, um, okay. even if it's not going to church or, or um, an organized religion. I think okay. there is, for a lot of people, I think it's just a natural desire um, to want a connection with who, your creator, right? It's the same yes. way. You, I, I look at it the same way. Children want a connection with their parents. Yes. Um, and so, a lot of jails and prisons, they make these faith services and, and um, different reading material, they make all of that available. As a therapist, I would try to kind of pull that in and kind of get to know okay. them a little bit and understand, um, you know, I may not un- know exactly what they practice or, you know, right. but to be open to understanding that and hearing from them of how it's important to them, I think yes. it's, it's very grounding. I think when yes. you have a faith practice, it kind of roots you differently. And so yes. using that when things are a little bit chaotic, to say, okay, well, did you pray today? You know, what, yes. what would God say to you right now? Yes. You, you know, pulling it in and using it um, to help people stay grounded, I think is really important. Yes. Um, and I think getting to know someone and understanding what their practice is is really important. I would have clients yes. who um, were Muslim. I didn't at the time. I didn't know a whole lot about Islam and, and okay. the differences of Christianity and Islam, the similarities. I didn't know any of that, and so okay. I would ask them, "Okay, well, teach me." Yes, you know, and so it's a way to connect with people. Yes, so people want to feel connected ultimately to one another, to their Creator, and so I think it's it's an incredibly important part of us as human beings. Yes. Um, I agree. And I think it's even more important if you are in an environment that you feel oppressed and you feel taken advantage of, you yes. feel alone in. I think your faith and that role of faith is even more powerful then. Um, yes. And I would have yes. some clients who felt ostracized by faith. And so being mindful that I now can't preach at you just because you don't have a faith practice. Right. But I have to help, under, I, I need to understand why or what, you know, either what happened or why is that so important? Um, why is it not important to you? But to, I think yeah. it helps to understand people. And I think faith will bridge some of those connections. I agree. I agree. And, you know, spirituality is a, another area of development that human beings grapple with. Just like mm-hmm. developing in your sense of yourself as a male or a female or exactly. what it means to be African-American, what does it mean to be Latino? You know, these identities 
uh, are developed over time, and spirituality is another one of those identities that is healthy for human beings to at least look at and, and mm-hmm. try to make sense of what it means for them. And, exactly. and then the other thing that it, it makes me think about is, that, is the fact that, you know, life is difficult. And there are things that happen to people that psychology has no answer for. Yeah. And it is in those moments where you have to reach inside yourself and, you know, figure out what do you believe? What is your faith in? You have to have faith in something outside of yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, yes. And it doesn't have to be the Christian God that I know, because I agree with you. It can be Islam. It could be, you know, I, I work with, with young people that practice like Eastern sort of things, like meditation, and, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they visualize things, and they, they, they do those kinds. They, they, they breathe deeply. And whatever their spiritual path is, whenever we have clients that, that practice it, we see them come alive and get better. Mm-hmm. In a way that, that talking about the mundane issues of life does does not do for people. Yes. And uh, you know, and and anybody who's ever been in a jail, I know people always make fun of people and they say, "Oh, they got jailhouse religion." You know, how they always say that mm-hmm. and try to minimize it. But let me tell you something: when that child or that person is by themselves in their cot at night, and they don't know what's mm-hmm. going to happen to them. You know, it is their faith, whether you want to exactly. make fun of it or not, but it is their faith that saves them. Um, exactly. And their faith that gives them the power to go on um, mm-hmm. in the face of the darkness, right? Exactly. And it is just a, it, it's a really big resource and tool for, you know, our fellow uh, citizens who are incarcerated. So I'm mm-hmm. just so happy that you've had the same experience with it that I have. Yes. Yeah. I think Excellent. when we incorporate faith, we learn a lot about people. Um, yes. You know, I would have guys who are talking about their family members, and they're like, you know, my grandmother doesn't understand because, you know, she's like a good person. Like, she, she goes to church as if there is mm-hmm. a standard. And yes. that then lets me know about his perspective, about right. church, about faith, about his grandmother, about all of yes. that. and the amount of shame that he feels, if that's how you, yes. how you identify someone as good or, or not, which right. I think for those of us in church, we know that it's not necessarily criteria, but <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> like, oh, well, they go to church. They're good for, I'm like, that's, yes. that's what makes you a good person. It means yes. you go to church. But right. for a lot of people, that's the standard. And so yes. what it tells me is that you feel some shame because you, yes. you feel that disconnect from, from God. You feel right. disconnected from your family, and you feel a lot, about, a lot of shame about it. And so I know yes. in that moment, my job is not to be preachy, but just to be empathetic. Well, I think this is an excellent place for a break. Please join us after the break when my guest, Janika Veasley, licensed mental health professional and founder of Healing Words Family Services, LLC, in Yardley, Pennsylvania, we'll talk more about incarceration and restoration.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Spiritual Principles for Emotional Healing, and I am your host, licensed mental health professional, Dr. Denise Johnson. And the topic for today's show is Incarceration, Healing Words, and Restoration. And my guest is licensed mental health professional, Janika Veasley, founder of Healing Words Family Services, LLC, in Yardley, Pennsylvania. As a person of faith, my job isn't to berate you or, or, you know, beat you up with scripture. My job is just to show you love and for you to recognize it. I don't need to tell you any of it. I just need you to recognize it. Um, and, And to me, that was, that was my ministry. I need yes. to be able to show you Christ. And yes. sometimes it's difficult, but I need to be able to at least show you that. Yes. I don't have to like anything that you've done. Right. I don't have to approve. Yes. I don't, I'm not the judge, jury, the executioner, the bailiff. I'm nobody. Yes. I right. need to show you Christ. And so um, I think it really was a, a point of connection I found. Yes. Um, and, and a point of healing. You know, I so I that. think it has a really big role in a lot of unspoken kind of ways. Yes. And, and yeah. for many people, that is the first time that maybe they've been in the presence of someone who just gave them unconditional validation, right? And love yeah. as a human being to, to mm-hmm. help them to understand you deserve that. You are mm-hmm. precious. You are important. You are special. Your life has meaning. Um, yeah. Whether you recognize it or see it or not, and and I want to be there with you to help you figure out what that meaning and purpose yeah. and value is, you know. Yeah. And uh, it and it it's a joy and a privilege and an honor to work with people in this capacity. Um, yeah. I um. You know. I would have a lot of people ask me like, well, why do you care? And I. I don't have a concrete answer. I care just because I do. As yes. you know, I love you as one human being can love another. Yes. Yes. And to me, it's just that basic. Um, yes. And I remember doing, it was a meditation I did a while ago. And what it was saying was when you strip away all the labels, you know, daughter, sister, mother, yes. wife, whatever label someone defines themselves by, therapist, Right. You know, any of those things, what is the thing you believe in most? And for me, it's love. And so yes. I see my, my mission and my purpose in life to show love, even yes. to individuals who don't understand it, right? Yes. Why, do you, why do you care? I just do. Yes. Just as one human being to another, I care. Yes. Especially with, with the young black man I worked with. I care as one human being can love another, but also because you're a young black man. Yes. And, and you, you deserve to be acknowledged and recognized and seen yeah i love that i love that so then what is the role of healing words and restoration in particular for this population i think the way we speak to one another is really important um and so that's that's why i name my practice healing words i think we can speak you know amazing and wonderful things we can speak healing and and yes cultivate healing in how we communicate yes. with one another. Um, and so that, to me, that in restoration is my, my perspective of to cultivate healing, to create space, to help people feel restored, 
find restoration, find healing. Um, and in jails and prisons, there is no space. There's no emotional space. There's no physical right. space. Right. Um, there's very little spiritual space. And so right. seeing that time with them and, and using that to create a space for them that they know is safe enough for them to feel whatever it is they're feeling, whether they're feeling angry at God, they're feeling um, sad, thankful, happy, confused, yes. and allowing the space to be there and allowing our communication to, to reflect that and create that, that healing and restoration. Um, I love that. I think that is, I think that's what helps create rehabilitation. Yes. Um, because that's difficult to do. It's difficult to use for a jail or a prison to rehabilitate someone. Right. Because what generally happens is people conform to whatever the rules are just to survive. And then they come right. home and they don't really have anything. They don't right. have a structure. They don't have a whole lot of, of resources or um, pretty much anything to, to rely on. And so if, yes. I feel as though if those of us that work in these facilities can create that space and show them, model for them how to create space, they can learn to do it for themselves when they get home. I agree. I agree. Excellent. And, and people underestimate the healing power of words. Yes. Words are extremely powerful. And yeah. even when clients initially don't know who they are or understand their value, when you come face-to-face -face with someone else who, who continually says over you, you are valuable, you are precious, you are worthwhile, not based on what you have or have not done, but based upon you know, your humanity or based upon the fact that you are a unique spirit being. You know, when uh -huh. someone speaks that over and over and over and, and interacts with you in that way, you know, you literally watch the person come alive. Um, even mm -hmm. those that try to, to fight it, you know, because then you get to say, exactly. right, you know, leave me alone. But, you know, but I'm telling you, if they are around you often enough, it, the, the love and the power of the positive words does have the ability to change their thinking um, about themselves yeah. and about their life and about what they can contribute you know, to society. It does. Mm -hmm. um, I, I agree. You know, so it's very powerful. So do you have any examples of anybody in particular that you worked with that you, were, you saw make a, a big change? Um, there's probably two clients that stick out most to me. Okay. Um, one was a, a young lady who, probably early 30s, um, but had a significant amount of trauma. Um, okay. And would dissociate. She would just check out. Um, and, you know, some, some textbook definitions of, like, depersonalization disorders and, you know, really just dissociating and having a really hard okay. time functioning. She was very, um, very institutionalized, and so it was very difficult for her to connect with people. Um, okay. And she was probably the first person I'd worked with with borderline personality disorder. And okay. Like I said, crash course, I wasn't ready. <laughs> She's someone <laughs> that I would kind of utilize a little bit of DBT with. Um, but she was someone who, as we worked together, just opened up and was probably one of the sweetest people I've ever met. Um, All right. And just had a lot of pain and a lot of trauma. And, you know, 
one of the things I loved about working in the jail, it's a little unconventional for therapy. Mm-hmm. And so um, there was some, I would see her so much because she had a lot of self-harm um, okay. and, and self-injury kind of instances. Yes. And so I would sometimes call her out of her unit. Sometimes I'd just go and see her at the door of her unit because she was housed alone. Yes. Um, yes. And for her to kind of connect and open up the way she did, I mean, she would order commissary and, and we would have oatmeal pie sometimes when I went to her room. You know, so yes. just being with her and kind of showing her a little compassion and love and humanity yes. Um, yes. and helping her to kind of slow herself down and, and meditate on things and use some guiding imagery um, right. really helped her find herself a little bit in, in all the yes. chaos. Um, but the challenge with that is you're still in these, these systems. And so it's very difficult to treat the person when you're not treating the system. Um, right. Right. At least with family systems, you can treat the family, but in a correctional system, it's incredibly difficult to, to address that system. And yes. so as the system would change, so would she. And so it was constantly, you know, just playing catch up a little bit. Um, and so she eventually ended up going back to the hospital and having a really hard time managing herself. But okay. when she was clear, she was very, very clear and, and could share some things with you and kind of work through her trauma a little bit um, yes. and learn to open up about what it meant to be a mother, what it meant to be a sister and what it meant to have trauma. And she was able to kind of work through some of those things. So yes. she's one of those people that is kind of like always with me. Um, Excellent. Yeah. And I had another uh, young man who, again, had a lot of trauma um, and just had a really hard time managing his emotions, okay. understanding things, um, connecting appropriately. And okay. so being able to kind of to speak with him and, again, stop some of these, these ideas of self-harm and helping to find value and worth and make better decisions and own to a degree your role in, in situations. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think that was that kind of owning and accountability has is a big thing for me and especially in these kind of settings where yes. you know, I don't need to know the details of your case, but if you were involved in any capacity, you gotta own it. You know, yes, and, that's right. and be authentic that's right. and real. Like yes. you know, I would have people come out, Oh, I didn't do it. I'm, I just look at I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm not judging you, but I need you to own what you did do. Something. Parts of it, yeah. whatever. Own, own whatever yes. it is. Um, yes. And so he was someone who was able to work through his trauma and work on the relationships that were part of that. And so we were able to do some family sessions a little bit, help him get on better medications, and able to kind of really help him in all these different areas. Um, yes. And so even after leaving the jail, just knowing that he's able and, and learned how to speak for himself and not yes. kind of be that, that child that was so victimized and allow people to yes. speak for him, but learning to find his own voice. Um, yes. So that is, that was a, a big, big win in my book. When you have someone who yes. can just at least own their voice and be, be accountable, you know, yes. to me that is a huge, a huge step. Wonderful, wonderful. That is so excellent. Well, you know, I'm going to say that you have been an absolute delight 
uh, to Thank you today. And it just does my heart so good and it gives me so much joy to know that God literally has you as an angel in these places that are dark. He has you as an angel and a light, you know, to help those mm-hmm. who, who are struggling, who cannot help themselves. It just, it is awesome to me to, to know the depth of care and concern that God has for every human being that he sends people there to love them and to help them. So I just want to thank you so much for all that you thank do. You. I want to thank you for the gift of God that you have in your heart and the fact that you share it with people. And I want to thank you for sharing it with me in the audience today. Thank you. I appreciate that you have me and that you are, you know, having different broadcasts to bring these issues to light because it is very needed. And I'm yes. I feel very blessed that I can be here with you. Excellent. So, how can the audience uh, contact you if they wanted more information? How could they do that? Uh, you can go to my website, Healing Words, F as in Frank, S as in Sam, org, or you can find me on Facebook with Healing Words Family Services. Excellent, excellent. So then, you know, at the end of my show, I always ask my guests, to either pray or say a blessing over the audience specifically about the topic that we've spoken of today. And so I'm going to ask you to do that for me now. Sure. Excellent. Lord, I ask that you be with us and guide us today. Be with those who are incarcerated, those that work in these facilities with those individuals and within those systems. Show us how to help those who are incarcerated or reentering the community and guide us throughout the day and be with us. In the Son's name I pray. Amen. Amen and Amen. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, Father, I praise you and I thank you, O God, for another opportunity to speak your name. I praise you and I thank you, O God, for giving us another venue in the marketplace, O God, where your name has the preeminence. I thank you for my guest today, O God. I lift up Miss Veasley to you, O God. I speak life over her. I speak hope over her. I speak joy over her. I speak tenacity over her, O God. I thank you for the anointing and the gift of God that you have given her, O God, to go into places, O God, where people are dark and lost and confused and sad. And from the depth of those ashes, O God, you have her speak words of life, words of restoration, O God, words of hope, O God. I thank you for her, O God. Whatever she stands in need of, O God, I stand in agreement with her for it this day, O God. I thank you that you're going to bless her business. I thank you that whatever she touches is blessed in your name. I thank you that her footsteps are ordered of you. I thank you, O God, that wherever she treads, we claim that as holy ground for you, O God. Make a way for her where there is no way and open doors, O God. I speak life, O God, over those that are incarcerated today, O God, and those who are in any sort of facility or institution, O God. I thank you, O God, that although this situation may have been meant for evil, O God, I thank you that by your spirit, O God, you are going to use these situations for good. Restore them unto yourself, O God. Turn their situations around, O God. Help them to see, O God, that even in this thing, O God, your hand is there, your love is there, your provision is there for them, O God. You are speaking life 
life and hope and joy and peace and love and and bounty and destiny, oh God. Even in these situations, I commit anyone else in the audience, oh God, today who is hurting, oh God, those that need you, oh God, this day to give them the revelation of the anointing and and the love that you have for them in their life in this situation that they find themselves in, oh God. I just speak it over them, oh God. I thank you that you're going to work exceedingly abundantly above all that they could ask or think. You are going to work like yourself on their behalf, oh God. I commit it into your hands. I count it as done in the name of your son, whom you know I utterly adore. Amen and amen. You have been listening to Spiritual Principles for Emotional Healing, and I am your host, Dr. Denise Johnson. And this show will be available to you to listen to on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash spiritual principles for emotional healing. Because I am believing God that as you repeatedly listen to these prayers, He will heal your brokenness the same way He has used these prayers to minister to my brokenness. Also, if you scroll to the bottom of the page, Some of my earlier shows are dedicated to discussing the specific principles God uses in emotional healing, like the power of love, emotional intimacy, empowerment through suffering, and healing through words. There are also past shows about depression and trauma. And if you have extra time, I would direct you to my shows Stigma and Denial, and dating with stigma and denial because these shows look at our resistance to dealing with our emotional issues in a way that is fun and fanciful. As always, it is my joy and honor to have you with me every time you tune in. And lastly, I want you to always remember where your spirit leads, your emotions, power, and destiny will follow.